This is the second of four podcasts exploring some of the poetic opening moments in the history of cinema. Not the greatest, the longest, the most beautiful or technically innovative. Just some poetic moments. By which I mean opening shots that encapsulate the film's content. What I call a compound moment. What we see and hear is so strong, it doesn't merely open the story, but succinctly establishes character, time, place and above all theme. Last week we discussed the opening moments where the camera tracked through space. In this episode, we'll be looking at opening shots where the camera stays rooted to its position. It isn't always easy to agree on what a film's opening shot actually is. Look at a James Bond movie and some might say it's a celebrated brand shot that comes before the pre-credit sequence. After the pre-credit sequence, you get the credits. After which, the plot is launched with Bond being told by M who his new target is. Which means that some Bond pictures begin no less than four times. Then, for films that have live action running beneath the credits, it can be convincingly argued that the accompanying image constitutes the opening shot. Not always. Take for instance Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, where the frame is filled by billowing steam, only for a cab to emerge, in slow motion, to Bernard Herrmann's ominous score. The yellow cab tells us it is New York. The low angle, perhaps from the gutter, gives us an indication of the level of life on view. The clouds of steam indicate heat and confusion, and the aggregate tells us that none of what follows will be easy. Or, under the credits of Scorsese's biopic of Jake LaMotta, we see the champion boxer draped in a leopard skin gown as he warms up in the ring. Filmed in slow motion, his movement appears graceful, as if it were a ritualistic dance to the intermezzo from the Cavaliero Stacana by Pietro Mascani. But the ropes that run in hard silhouette across the screen appear like bars, suggesting that this may be a prison, or at least a cage designed to contain the raging bull. I am beginning with Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Although the opening three credit titles run over an image of one of Uppsala's waterways, I think it is reasonable to say that the story actually opens up on a miniature replica of what appears to be a 19th century classically designed city house. With Robert Schumann's piano quintet and E-flat major playing on the soundtrack, we see an ornately detailed model of a balcony with three bay windows beneath which is an inscription. It means not merely for pleasure. It is unusual to see an inscription on a house and certainly to see such a stern message. But a pan down from the balcony shows us that this is not a house but the proscenium to a theatre stage. The stage floor is black and white checks. There appears to be a red velvet curtain that is being pulled back by cherubs and candles glow from what would be the footlights of a real theatre. The warmth of the candles immediately give a nostalgic feel, 
and when the screen is raised on the replica to reveal a scene in a forest with a castle in the distance, that nostalgia gives way to fables and legends of fantasy and romance. A young maiden stands in a white dress with a young man, perhaps a chevalier, on the other side of the stage. No sooner have we absorbed that image than the camera racks focus and the stage backdrop raises up to reveal the looming face of a young boy. This is Alexander, played by Berthold Guve, and he then places a third cardboard figure into the scene. In other words, young Alexander is directing a little play. And the fact that we are seeing the frame of the stage within the frame of the screen lets us know that amongst other things, this story will be about storytelling. Eblot de Lust is a translation into Danish from a sonnet written by 19th century American poet William Morton Payne. Why Danish and not Swedish? Because Alexander's replica model is of the Danish Royal Theatre in Copenhagen, and Eblot de Lust is their motto. The opening lines of Payne's sonnet read, Not merely for our pleasure, but to purge the soul from baseness, from ignoble fear, and all the passions that make dim the clear, calm visions of the world. When not making films, Bergman was directing plays. So productive was he that for many years throughout his five-decade career, he would direct a theatrical production in the winter, and then during the summer, write and direct a feature film. Which means that no matter what time of the year it was, Bergman was involved in art and artifice, all the while using drama and literature as a means by which to find a space free from the thinking that he felt blighted his life. Religious dogma, social custom, family tradition. He was a man who spent his entire life striving to be himself. So, theatre and cinema are not just places of amusement and distraction, where you go to lose yourself from the outside world, but rather the arena where you could liberate yourself. Before he embarked on making what was largely an autobiographical story of his childhood, Bergman announced it would be his last feature film, and so it is fair to say that each image and event is carefully constructed to be read as a reflection of his life's work. That opening shot lasts just under a minute. The next opening shot is very quick, barely 10 seconds. Not exactly blink and you might miss it, but for the critics who saw it on its initial release back in 1959, almost all of them wished they hadn't. I'm talking about Michael Powell's masterpiece, Peeping Tom. It is very hard to underestimate the hostility that met this film. Writing in the Tribune magazine, Derek Hill declared that, quote, the only real satisfactory way to dispose of Peeping Tom would be to shovel it up and flush it swiftly down the nearest sewer. Even then, the stench would remain. Powell had co-founded the Archer's Film Company with the Hungarian-born Emmerich Pressburger, and together they had written, produced and directed some of the most innovative, daring, startling and sublime films ever to come out of Britain. The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus, The Red Shoes, and The Tales of Hoffman. But the celebrated partnership ended in 1957, and two years later, Powell delivered a film that would effectively finish his career. 
written by Leo Marx, who had served in the British Army during World War II as a cryptographer. Peeping Tom tells the deeply disturbing tale of young Londoner Mark Lewis, who appears to be an aspiring filmmaker, but who, in actual fact, is a serial killer who improvises his camera so he can document the terror on the faces of his female victims as he murders them. Ask people who have seen the film, and invariably they will tell you it opens with a long tracking shot filmed surreptitiously by Mark as he makes his way through Soho, where he engages with a prostitute, It'll be two quid. follows her to her flat, and then murders her as she undresses. But that's not the opening shot. It's not even the second shot. It's the fourth. No, Powell opens his film on a very tight close-up of an eye. It is shut, and then suddenly it blinks open, and we see, well, we see an eye. Think about that. We are sitting in the cinema and watching, and now on screen we see a giant mirror reflecting back to us, the very thing we need to see. In other words, this film is going to be about seeing, or to be more precise, looking. More precise again, voyeurism. Or even more precisely, a malevolent, lethal sight. Which is the very reason why the film caused such outrage to begin with. For almost all the critics, and of the very few members of the public who got to see the film before it was pulled from theatres, Peeping Tom offended because it turned the look back onto us. But the question again is what it is about the story that demanded Powell to open the film in this way. That strategy announces that the film is not so much about watching as it is a study about someone who watches. The close-up is so close, so inquisitive, that it immediately calls to mind another close-up of an eye, perhaps the most famous close-up of an eye in all of cinema. Un Chien Andalou, directed by Luis Bunuel and Salvador Dali from 1931. There we see a man sharpening a razor blade, carefully widening a woman's eye, and then he appears to slice it open. It is such a shocking event that cinema has been recovering ever since. What Bunuel was doing was attacking the very organ we need to experience film. He was not being provocative, but rather signalling to the audience that we should not trust what we see. Alfred Hitchcock opened one of his late masterpieces, Vertigo, with a similar scheme. As the credits get underway, and we hear Bernard Herrmann's hypnotic score, Hitchcock's camera inches across a woman's face, showing us her lips, her chin, and then her eye. And then for the final credit, Hitchcock ensures that his name is the only one that is placed dead centre in the frame, cutting the eye in two, simulating the cut from Bunuel's movie. It's appropriate because in Vertigo, we can never trust our eyes. And I mention The Master of Suspense because just a few months after Powell's movie was released, Hitchcock unleashed Psycho, another film about a murderous voyeur. But it didn't do his career any harm. The final shot I want to look at completely inverts Powell's opening shot, because instead of focusing on an eye, the camera is the eye. 
When preparing to film Jean-Dominique Bobie's memoir, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which Bobie blinked out with his left eye because he was suffering from locked-in syndrome, director Julian Schnabel, screenwriter Ronald Harwood and cinematographer Janusz Kaminski had to come up with a way that they could effectively convey to audiences Bobie's physical state, what it must feel like to be completely paralysed yet mentally agile. Even before we see anything, while the screen is still black, we hear the distant echoes of voices. And then, from the bottom of the screen, an area of light opens up. It is as if a curtain were being raised. The image is blurry, and before we can clearly identify what we're looking at, the frame is shrouded in pink and then darkens. The procedure begins again, with the same curtain being raised and the same voices heard. Then the screen changes colour, from black to red to pink to white, randomly back and forth, the colours fading into one another. And then different coloured shapes appear, green, dark brown. The shapes begin to move, and then we figure it out. Schnabel and his collaborators decided to open with a point-of-view shot. The point-of-view shot has been central to cinema's vocabulary since its earliest days, so Schnabel was hardly being innovative here. But it is how he treated the point-of-view shot that is highly effective. The vision flickers and we realise we are blinking. The green and dark brown shapes materialise into medics. We understand who and where we are a patient in hospital, recovering from a physical catastrophe. And in one shot, and less than one minute, Schnabel has established the plot and his underlying theme. Looking is a form of communication. In the next episode, we will examine opening moments by focusing on the use of dialogue.